Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Charlie went straight from high school into the workforce. Found a job, not exactly what he hoped for, but it paid. So, finds a job. He's making about minimum wage, a little bit more, when he meets the woman who becomes his wife. Then he's making not much more than that when they welcome their first son into the world, not much more than that when they welcome their daughter, and no more than that when they welcome their next son. So now a wife, three children, he's working long hours, God's providing enough, but just enough, (laughs) not much more than enough. Charlie's feeling the strain of his finances as he provides for his family when God opens a huge door for him. Through a friend of a friend, quite randomly, there's a sales position for a large company that opens up. He gets an interview and he gets the job. Immediately, his income doubles and he has benefits starting that very day. So he, his wife, his children feel the loosening up, (laughs) the sort of freedom and opening up that having a little buffer on your income gives, and it just seems what a kind provision from God. Charlie thanks God for this. The work itself, it's not his favorite, it's not his least favorite, it's fine, and he's good with it. There's really only one problem in his job, and it's his boss. The problem starts small. He works Christmas and his boss forgets to pay him time and a half. His boss starts texting him last minute to fill vacancies that his boss should have filled before, but it gets put on him. Charlie's starting to feel this, but he's making so much more money and his life's become a lot easier and less complicated, so he just endures it. It's fine. He doesn't think very much of it at first. As time goes on, the problem gets bigger and bigger. One day, his boss texts him to come in last minute, and Charlie already had plans, tells him, I'm sorry, I've already got plans, I can't come in. His boss is not pleased, and he goes to upper management, speaks badly of Charlie, says a lazy guy, won't come in when I call him, and now upper management has a negative view of Charlie for something he's not done wrong, that's his boss's fault, and he's realizing, man, future promotions are maybe becoming limited because I'm being slandered. When Charlie does something good at work, the credit goes to his boss. Violations of his sense of justice, week after week, but again, he just endures it because he needs the job. Unfortunately for Charlie, his boss knows he needs the job. And now his boss has a chip on his shoulder for Charlie. He begins belittling him directly to him at work for small things, and he does it in front of his coworkers. And he knows there's nothing Charlie's going to do. He needs this job. As time goes on, Charlie starts waking up at three in the morning in his dark room, worrying about that day of work. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to see his boss, who's making his life a living nightmare. This happens day after day, but he needs the job. He starts thinking, This is not right. My boss is petty. He's a bad worker. He's cruel. He's a small man. 
Here I am working diligently and giving my very best, helping the company move forward. He takes all of the credit for it. He lies directly. He deceives people. He slanders me. This is not right. This sense of justice being violated that he's facing day after day, he keeps it to himself at work so he can keep his job, but this is an anger that's quickly turning into a boiling vat of bitterness, and it comes out at home now on his poor wife, on his three children, he's quick-tempered. Charlie's changing, and it's not good. And in yet another explosion at home, he yells, it's just not fair. Is there hope for Charlie. You know that the argument of this class is for Charlie on Wednesday and you on Wednesday, whatever alterations to that story you need to make to have it fit your own, you on Wednesday, Charlie on Wednesday, there is hope for him. And that hope is found primarily in who God is. When we talk about the attributes of God, which we're doing in this class, you remember we're simply talking about who God is. These are not things made up. We're deriving all of them from the scriptures. We're quoting references. If this is who God actually is, then the more we believe this, embrace this about God, it changes our life on Wednesday. In Charlie's case, he can have hope because although his boss is an unrighteous, terrible man, Charlie serves a God who is a righteous God. So, as always, we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at this attribute of God, His righteousness, seeing it from Scripture. What does it mean that God is righteous? And then at the end, we'll turn back to Charlie and see how this can produce in him a patience when mistreated, just as it can produce in you as well. But you have to believe it. So, let's see it from Scripture first. Let's look at the righteousness of God. If you want to turn to a specific passage, our main passage toward the end of the class, it'll be a while till we get there, is going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, the verses specifically will start in verse 18, but I'm going to be citing a lot of verses before that, you might not have time to jump around, but that's the main passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. And verse 23 is actually the main verse, but we'll look at the context as well. So you might want to have that in mind. But let's begin here by looking at the righteousness of God. This is a unique attribute of God for us today, partly because of our English word. <laughs> I was just talking with Josh Miller somewhere about William Tyndall and how he shaped the English language, so did William Shakespeare. Language develops over time, and that's true of English. So many of our words, they come from other languages, usually Greek or Latin, or we borrow them from French or German or what have you. So English, as we speak it today, it's an ever-changing language, and that's totally fine. That's every language is that way. Because of that, when we think of the righteousness of God, we have to give a little caveat here, and that is, you know two English words, righteousness and justice. And you know that in English, those are different words. We use those words in different ways. They overlap, there's similarity, but they're not the same word. You wouldn't say liberty and righteousness for all. <laughs> You'd say liberty and justice. So justice has more a connotation of a judge. A judge gives justice. A judge is righteous and does righteousness, but there's a different flavor to the word there. 
And when you think of a righteous, godly, righteous person walking uprightly, you don't immediately think of justice. Even today with social justice. So now justice has a whole other meaning too. So righteousness, justice. We have to caveat and say in the Bible, there is one primary word both in the Hebrew that the Old Testament's written in and in the Greek that the New Testament's written in, there's one primary word that means both righteousness and justice. What that means for us is when we talk about the righteousness of God, we can't not talk about the justice of God. Overlapping categories in English, but in the Bible they're put together. So the main word in the Old Testament is called tzedakah, and words related to that mean righteousness. And then in the New Testament, dikaiosune is the Greek word that means righteousness. But remember, it means righteousness and it means justice. So if you're just thinking, what does it mean that God is righteous? You have to have a sense of justice in there too, biblically, even if you might not in English. Okay, that's the caveat. Let me give you a definition, an easy definition for righteousness from Wayne Grudem. And then let me give you just one verse to start us off that shows you very clearly that God is, is this. Here is the definition from Wayne Grudem. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right. So... Always with what is right. And you see how easy that is to remember because it's righteousness. <laughs> You're doing what's right. In the gospel, when we talk about uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. An easy way to think of that is so that we may be right with God. So if you can use that word right, and even that has some variation what we mean by that, but that's an easy way to remember righteousness. So we're saying God is righteous. He always, without exception, does what is right. There's a lot to explain there, but that's an easy, simple definition. Here's the second part of Grudem's definition we'll get into. He says, and God is himself the final standard of what is right. So we'll talk about that. Before we do, let me give you one verse, one of the easiest, clearest verses on God's righteousness. This is Deuteronomy 32, 4, and it says, speaking of God, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. That's a different Hebrew word coming through as justice there, but you see that concept. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just there's our word, just and upright is he. So just in that, you see a very clear declaration, God is just. And we know from our discussion, that's the same as saying God is righteous. So it just says, just is he. So that's easy. Okay, then he's righteous. But you see justice is also in there. You see, upright is also in there. So these are going to give some flavor to what we think of righteousness. All right, let's jump into beginning with what Wayne Grudem points out in the second part of his definition. If we're going to say God does what is right, then the most natural question to follow is, what is that? What does it mean, what is right? Who decides what is right? 
This might not be interesting to you, so that's fine. Ignore it. But there is actually a very well-aged philosophical question that you may have encountered. It's called the Euthyphro Dilemma. Euthyphro. I could spell that. Are you really going to write it? I guess you could write it if you want. E-U-T-H-Y-P-H-R-O. Euthyphro. And that's because Plato, who... 300 BC basically sets the stage for all Western philosophical thinking, if you care about that. Plato wrote this uh, narrative, really, a philosophical narrative about his teacher Socrates that's called Euthyphro. And in that, it's Socrates, Plato's teacher, talking to this guy named Euthyphro, and they're as Socrates does, Socratic method, he's asking all these questions, they're trying to go really deep, it gets confusing, but the point of the book is, what's righteousness? And at one point in the book, Socrates asks this question to Euthyphro, and this is the dilemma. He's going to use the word pious, but think righteous, okay? Is the pious or righteous being loved by the gods He's Greek. He's got a pantheon. Is the pious, righteous being loved by the gods because it's pious? Or is it pious because it's being loved by the gods? So here's the question. We're trying to figure out what's, how do you know what's right? And he has a concept, Plato, of the gods. So thinking of the gods. He's saying, okay, do the gods are for us God? Does God... Does God have a standard of what is right that's above him or outside of him, and he's adhering to that standard? Is that what's happening? So there's something outside of God, and it's right. Or on the other hand, is it just that whatever God happens to like, that's right? Is it he's adhering to that standard of what's right? Or is it he just decides, like, um, you know, that looks good, that's right in Let's say that's right and that's wrong. Okay. So that's the dilemma. So which one is it? It's a dilemma because if you have a standard outside of God that's right, where, where did that come from? <laughs> is that another God or what is that, you know? And it's a dilemma because on the other hand, if God's just arbitrarily going like, yeah, yeah let's say they shouldn't kill people, but it's okay to do this, it's not okay, then it kind of makes right seem arbitrary. Like, doesn't matter. God could have made anything right. That's the Euthyphro dilemma. It's not really a dilemma for us. Praise God. <laughs> Being Christians, having the word of God, this makes things much easier for us because this is basically how you get away from that whole dilemma. God doesn't have a standard outside of himself and he's not just randomly picking what's right. God is the standard of what is right. Meaning... It is the nature of God himself, his attributes, what we're talking about here, who God is in and of himself that decides for the whole universe he created the things that are right. Thankfully, God created you with a natural sense of this so that God himself, the things that he is, the things that he does, you have a natural, when it's not hindered by sin, but you have a natural sense like, mm, yes, that's right. God treats people rightly. Yes, that's right. So we're not saying like, well, God could be a monster and horrible, but he's God, so you got to let him. No, you're created to be able to perceive, no, God is not a monster. God's good. He's right. He's upright. He treats people rightly and justly. But you do need to bear in mind, 
God's righteousness is just meaning that God is consistent with himself. Nothing outside of himself. He's consistent with himself. As an aside, a practical thing, when you're reading the Old Testament, you know that you come across incidents and commands that are difficult for us 2,000 years or many more years later for us to accept today. Sometimes there are things God does and says in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that confuse us, that some of them seem to violate our sense of justice. You go, how can God do that? If you're convinced that God is the standard of what's right, then maybe emotionally that will continue to be an issue, but at least in your thinking, that's, not, that's a non-issue. That's a non-issue. You should still wrestle through it and go, how does this correspond to this natural sense of right? Sure, you can do that. But at the end of the day, God can't do wrong. How could he do wrong? He's the standard of what is right. Hopefully God will help us, even with those Old Testament passages, to work through those in a way that we can even embrace the righteousness of God even if it sometimes rubs against what we're accustomed to today. We're not the standard of righteousness. You're not the standard of what's right. God is. Here's Louis Burkhoff uh, talking about this very thing. Quote, The fundamental idea of righteousness is that of strict adherence to the law. And here he's just meaning what's right. Among men, it presupposes there's a law to which they must conform. So we have a standard of what's right and we conform to it. It's sometimes said that we can't speak of the righteousness of God because there's no law to which he's subject. But though there's no law above God, there is certainly a law in the very nature of God. And this is the highest possible standard by which all other laws are judged. God does what is right, and he is the standard by his own nature of what is right. All right, so let's get into more, what does it mean that he does what is right? So let's be more specific. What is this standard? Systematic theologians like Louis Burkhoff, I quoted, and others who like to go through the Bible and pull things together and categorize them. Some of you are wired like that. You love structure. You just love it, you know? Go read some good systematic theologies like Wayne Grudem's. You will love it. You will delight yourself. And others of you are just not wired like that. Don't worry, the Bible's not presented like that, right? It's not propositions, it's stories mostly and letters. But anyways, systematic theologians, and some of you, therefore, like to make distinctions and put things into categories. I think God made us that way. That's great. You're cleaning up your house. You've got pencils and scissors and erasers and all these things scattered about. And what do you do? You get boxes and you put the pencils in that box and you put the erasers in that box and you step back and you go, wow, that feels nice. And we're sort of doing that with theology as well, okay? So if you like doing that, theologians have lots of ways of distinguishing between ways of thinking of God's righteousness. But I'm just going to take one main one here. And I'm borrowing this from James P. Boyce. That's not James Montgomery Boyce, if you know him. This is a different guy from before. But James P. Boyce, he says there is an absolute righteousness of God and a relative righteousness of God. There's our boxes. The absolute righteousness of God means when you say God's righteous, you just mean what you mean when you say a person's righteous. He is upright, 
Theologians call this the rectitude of God, meaning you are upright. It's a metaphor. You stand, you're not shady, doing shady things, taking bribes. No, God is upright. That's the picture. That means God always acts with integrity. That means God always keeps his promises. That means God treats people the way they should be treated, always. So even when you think of things like the doctrine of hell, that's a difficult doctrine. But if we believe the righteousness of God, then that means that hell is the most appropriate thing that God could do given the circumstance of people rebelling against his rule and not repenting. Hell is, it's not just we allow it, it's righteous because God is upright and he does right things because of, again, who he is in his nature. That's the absolute righteousness of God. This was true of God before he made any creation to interact with. This has always been true of God. So sometimes when the Bible speaks of the righteousness of God, it just means he's upright. Like Joseph, being a righteous man, was going to send Mary away secretly. He was an upright man. He wasn't going to be vindictive with her and cruel. He was going to be righteous. When you think of God, you should think of him not as a cruel dictator doing mean things in the Old Testament, nor should you think of him as some grandfatherly figure just bats an eye at bad things or someone who has in any way a lapse in integrity. God is upright. So that's the absolute righteousness of God or his rectitude. Let's put that over here. Let's get into that second box, which is most of what you see in the Bible. This is what we will call the relative righteousness of God. And we mean relative in the sense that it is God relating to his creation. Absolute, absolute righteousness just means God in his being is righteous even if there's no creation. Relative righteousness is what happens when an absolutely righteous God encounters his creation. I'm going to, there's a lot we could divide here, do, 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 smaller boxes, but just to keep things really simple, this is how I've thought of God's righteousness, and it helps me. Think about the branches of government in the United States. Think about justice. You've got the legislative making laws. You've got the judicial judging, ideally judging based on the laws. And you've got the executive making sure that the laws are happening. People are obeying them. Legislative, judicial, executive, right? You can think of God's righteousness in the world in those three ways, and you've pretty much covered all of his relative righteousness, how God acts in the Bible. Let me show you that. Legislative. When we say God's righteous, we mean in part he makes righteous rules. Here's Psalm 19, verse 9. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. When you're studying scripture and it is calling you to something very difficult that you would not call yourself to, you are wrong and God is right because he's righteous. All his rules are good. They're not bad. So legislative, God makes good laws, good commands for us. Judicial, this means that God is a righteous judge. This is emphasized throughout the scripture. He made the laws, and now he judges on the basis of the laws he made. Here's Genesis 18, 25. 
This is Abraham speaking to God who's going to destroy Sodom. And he says, well, what if there are righteous people in there? You can't destroy them with righteous people in there. He says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Meaning righteousness, righteously. And God does. Just turns out there's no righteous people in there. Abraham misunderstood. There's nobody in there but Lot. And God saves him, judges Sodom and Gomorrah. He's the judge of all the earth, and he does what is just. Here's Psalm chapter 9. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Like an ancient king on his throne, if you had a righteous king, meaning he judged people according to the just laws and he wasn't accepting bribes and he wasn't being biased, he was doing what was right, then the kingdom flourished. Then everyone rejoiced. And conversely, if you had a king who was biased, like an Ahab, killing Naboth, take his vineyard for myself, through his wife, then everybody moans. When you get to the highest throne of the universe and it's God sitting there, the question is, is he a good king who's doing the right thing or is he a monster, a cruel dictator who's doing the wrong thing? Is he a Henry VIII beheading his wives? And the answer of the Bible is his throne is a throne of righteousness. Do you realize, although it technically couldn't be otherwise, from our vantage point, theoretically, if you imagined an all-powerful being in heaven, the universal potentate, what if he wasn't righteous? What if he wasn't a judge who, because of his own nature, did what is right? What if he could be bribed? Well, <laughs> I'd be under a rock somewhere, I don't know. This would be a very terrible universe. The reality is, though, there are so many painful things in this world because of our rebellion against his rule... Yet the one who rules is righteous. It's a great relief. I need to make a little sub-point here. When you read your Bible thinking this, okay, God's a righteous judge, you may be surprised that very often the Bible associates God's righteousness with saving, with saving. I thought it was with judging. God's righteous. He's a judge. He judges. But we're told that God's righteous also because he saved Israel out of Egypt. 1 John 1, 9, have you ever thought about that? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us? Wait a minute. <laughs> just to condemn us, right? Judge. Why is he just to forgive us? There's more we could say, but one thing you need to see is that the justice of God, whereby he judges sin, also has with it him saving those who suffer and are afflicted wrongly. So here's an example. That Psalm 9 I just read to you ends, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Think of the Exodus. God judges Egypt. But why does he judge Egypt? So that he can save Israel. So the justice or the righteousness of God is not just a terrifying thing, although it is that, but for those who humble their heart under his mighty hand, it is the way he saves us out of this wicked, corrupt world. Christ comes back, day of the Lord, fiery judgment. It doesn't touch us. In fact, it's the way he saves us out of it. It's right for him to do it. And then purifies the world, puts us back on it. Now there are no problems, no enemies. It 
salvation through judgment. So part of God's righteousness is that he saves. We're told this about Jesus. Remember Isaiah chapter 11, it's looking forward to him, says, Jesus, when he comes, he's not going to judge by what his eyes see. He's not going to decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Why the poor? Why the meek? Why the lowly? Because those are the ones in this world typically not receiving righteousness. Again, everybody gets wronged here and there. It's a world of unrighteousness. But if you're poor, if you're lowly, you don't have any way to get back. You just have to take it. Like the Charlie and his job, the boss can do what he wants. He's up here. Charlie, you take it. And you see all through the Old Testament, the poor and the afflicted, When Israel's overpowered by her enemies, when Egypt comes in and makes them slaves, there's nothing they can do. They're powerless. They're crying out to God. And God judges their enemies. And in judging their enemies, he saves them. So this is a key part of God's righteousness. Don't just think him, boom, judging the bad. But in doing that, he's also saving the innocent. Legislative, judicial, lastly, executive. God also acts to judge those who violate his moral law. He makes the laws based on his own nature. Here's the laws. Then he judges if you've broken them or kept them or broken them. And then he's the one who executes, meaning he's the one who acts to reward those who keep them, amazingly, it's in the Bible, and also to judge those who don't. God was the executive in Egypt against Pharaoh. Here's the law, Pharaoh, let my people go. He judges you are not keeping the law. And he comes in with plagues to execute judgment on the land. Sometimes theologians speak of, um, you know, these are big words, but retributive, you know, retributive justice. The idea there is it's a justice where someone's done wrong and here comes a penalty. Retributive someone does right and they get a reward, we call it remunerative justice. But you know the idea if you don't know the word. God exercises both. He pays back the wicked on their own head and he also gives rewards. Rewards are not deserved by any creature. We don't merit rewards and yet God is so good that he still gives rewards for obedience. What this means is If you have God as the executor of justice in the world, and God is all-powerful and all-wise, there is not one injustice or sin committed in this world through all of history that will not be accounted for. Not even one. You say, well, I can think of a lot of wrongs that are not accounted for. Think of your political opponents. Think of your neighbor, how they have those ugly shrubbery, and you tell them, cut that, and they're not cutting it. It's growing, and the vines are going everywhere. That's wrong. They don't care. Where's God's justice? <laughs> you know, your spouse has mistreated you, and they just get away with it. Well, where's God's justice? You've got your little four-year-old and your little two-year-old, and the two-year-old, he hits the four-year-old with his toy, and mom and dad weren't there. So now they're both crying and both screaming. They have different stories, and we don't know what, who did what. I can't, I don't know. He got away with it. So it looks like 
Injustices happen in this world and people get away with it. Russia invades Ukraine. We don't know how that's going to play out, but it's happening. Who's going to arbitrate that? Is, is he just going to get away with that? All through history, Hitler's murder of millions of Jewish people. And then he died. Where's the payment? He didn't even go to the Nuremberg trials. Is there justice here? So it doesn't always look this way. But here's what scripture says. Here's 2 Corinthians 5.10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Some question, is this just believers, unbelievers? Yet the principle is true. All of us, believer or not, you have to appear before the judgment seat and judgments given to Christ. And all of us give an account. See that account? For everything we've done. Jesus said there's not one idle word you get away with. And you have to give account for all done, good, good, remunerative, bad, retributive. This is pictured in the Bible in a few places, including Revelation 20, as books. Final judgment comes. All the dead are standing there. There is Christ and books are opened. And what, what's in the books? There are big books. All the injustices. When that boy hit the other boy with his toy. That's written in there. There it is. Russia invades Ukraine. A military person kills people in a village, gets away with it. That's written in there. Your boss treats you like dirt. That's written inside that book. I don't know if there's literally books. The point is that God keeps track of every injustice. And it's in there, meaning it's not erased, it's not gone, it's not invisible to God. The reason it feels like, is God righteous? Is he a just judge? Is because God, as the standard of righteousness, determines that he can't ignore an injustice, but he can delay executing judgment on those who do wrong. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God or we'd all be dead. We'd all be dead and we'd all be in hell if that was not true. Think of all the injustices and sins you committed before you came to know Christ. You'd be gone. I don't know age accountability. I don't know how that works, but you'd be gone fast. God can delay executing judgment. That accounts for why this world is so messed up. We ruined it. God's just judgment just, boom, destroys it. It's still there, but it's all messed up. What is that? It's God is delaying executing judgment so that he can save a remnant, even us, out of it. It's his mercy. So God can delay judgment, and that's why there's injustice in this world. I mean, it's ultimately us, through our forefather Adam, rebelling. But why isn't it all judged now if God's a good judge? He's delaying. He did it for you. He's doing it for others. He's doing it for Charlie's boss. He's delaying judgment. But notice, delay does not mean he doesn't do it. He still does it. It's just delayed. The one other thing that God can do and be just is he can transfer judgment. This is harder for us to comprehend, and there's only one case in which it happens, besides maybe Adam, but it's Jesus. He, God can transfer judgment on someone who deserves it onto his own spotless, perfect son. And that's the gospel. That's what he does. But notice, if you come to Christ, so let's say Manson 
is in prison. Let's say he came to Christ. I don't know his spiritual state. I don't know a thing about it, okay? But let's just say genuinely comes to Christ and he's cruelly murdered individuals and he comes to Christ. And some people would say, that's not fair for God to forgive that. Well, that's a right sentiment because you feel like there needs to be justice. But you're misunderstanding that God can rightly transfer judgment and all of Manson's sins then are paid on Jesus. They're not ignored. They're not, poof, gone. They're not cleared away. God will not, quote, clear the guilty. He's not clearing the guilty. He's punishing the guilty. But in this case, he reckons Jesus as guilty and he punishes him for this person's sins. You may struggle with that with great grievous sinners, but you're a great grievous sinner. So your sins punished on Jesus also. Legislative, judicial, executive, a good way to think of God's righteousness or justice. Let me just, as we finish this discussion, focus a little more on what I just talked about. How does the righteousness of God play into the gospel? Because you know that's also a key term in Romans, talking about the gospel. God alone is perfectly righteous. No one else is, and that's our problem. Because if he's righteous, he's got to punish any unrighteousness he finds. That's us. That's the key human problem. Then we get to Romans 3 and we find this. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Okay. Right? Where is it? <laughs> I want to see that. Where's the righteousness of God? That's what we're talking about. Well, it's apart from the law. Even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the Old Testament. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The gospel is a product of the righteousness of God. It is not God's righteousness fighting against his love. Don't think of it like that. It's God's righteousness requires judgment for him to be right. And there you are sinning. So he has to judge you, execute that. He's the judge. He will do right. But it's also God's righteousness, his moral rectitude, his uprightness that causes him to have, doesn't cause, it's the wrong wording, leads, I don't know what wording to use, pick your wording. He has compassion on that object of his wrath at the same time, amazingly. And in his righteousness, he knows the only way he can transfer that judgment from you is it has to be on someone else who has no sin of their own because he'd have to judge them too. And when he looks across the earth, well, there's nobody. There's, no, there's none righteous, not even one. So where's he going to put this judgment? He can't get rid of it. Where's it going to fall? And he knows he's the only one who's righteous. So he sends himself. The second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, into the world, goes on a cross. Here's all the judgment. And he takes it and he dumps it there on his son, his only son whom he loves. And in that transference, the righteousness of Christ, what Paul's calling the righteousness of God here, the righteousness of God himself is taken and is reckoned yours. You have it. You can have that. And here is all your unrighteousness. And on the cross, God takes it on Jesus and he reckons it as belonging to him. You get Christ's record. Christ gets your record. He gets smashed. The Father crushes him three hours of darkness in some mysterious way. And there you are now, if you believe in Christ through faith, if you believe in Christ, there you are. God's still righteous. Your sins are dealt with and not ignored. 
and yet you are made righteous. That's what Paul says afterward in that same chapter. He says, this whole thing was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. He didn't judge people for all their sins. What? How is that possible? It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, your sins punished, and the justifier, the righteousizer, the one who reckons you righteous, of those who have faith in Jesus. So this is the righteousness of God. What does this mean for Charlie? That is our question as we come to a close. And I give you this one passage from 1 Peter. It's one of my favorite in the whole Bible. It's maybe the one I go to in counseling more than almost any other passage. This is the very heart of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is about suffering, especially being persecuted, meaning suffering unrighteousness from others for no good reason. How are you going to handle that? And Peter tells us, he's speaking in verse 18 to servants who have unjust masters mistreating them like Charlie with his boss. And he says, treat him with all respect. That is hard to do. How could we possibly do that? He tells us by looking to Jesus. How did Jesus endure it when people slandered him, said he's blasphemed God, said all kinds of false things against him, spit on him, slapped him, beat him, dressed him up in a mockery as if he were king? put him on a cross, walked by, mocked him some more, publicly humiliated, ashamed, naked, before the watching eye of the public? And how did Jesus say, Father, forgive them? How do you do that? First Peter tells you. Look at verse 23. He suffered. He didn't threaten. What did he do? How did he do that? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If you have a righteous God, it's not easy. You continue doing it every day. You can be mistreated and can entrust your cause to God knowing that he will judge. He will not ignore it. It's in his book. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and Romans therefore says, so you get the cup of cold water, give it to your enemy. Leave it to the justice of God. Charlie's awake again, it's 3 a.m., and his soul is downcast. But this time, he decides to obey the psalm and take hold of his soul and say, why are you downcast on my soul? I'm going to hope in God. And he prays there in the morning, God, I just want people to know that my boss is a liar. I want them to know he's a fraud. I want to get back at him. I want him to feel one-tenth of the misery that he's caused me. And I know that he will. I know that my boss will get justice. That you, God, do see everything that's happening every day. Others don't see it. My boss doesn't care. But you see it, God, and he's not going to get away with it either. He gets punished for it or Christ does on the cross. So much of Charlie's stress is this violated sense of justice. The reality is, if he believes in the righteousness of God, there is no violation of justice. There is only a delay and hopefully a transfer. So Charlie, this isn't easy, but he continues, con 
continues to entrust himself to God who judges justly. When he's belittled, when he's mistreated, spoken poorly of, his anger is still there. Be angry, says the Bible, and he is. When he sees his boss acting like a fool, he's angry. But he does not let the sun go down on his anger. It's no longer turning into bubbling rage inside him that spills over on his family. He takes it every time it comes, because it comes. He's not stoic. He's angry, and he takes it consciously, and he continues entrusting it to the one who judges justly every time. Okay, here it is. Okay, and he's giving it to God. Father, forgive him. He starts praying for his boss. That's how you know you've reached a turning point. He starts praying for his boss, and he's not praying, shatter his teeth and cast him on the rocks. Not the imprecatory Psalms. He's praying that God's justice would be transferred from his boss unto Christ. And oddly enough, as he's praying this day after day and trusting everything to God, his heart is softening even toward his boss. I would love to say, and technically I could, I'm making this story up, but I'm not going to do it. I would love to say it changed his boss, but it didn't. But it did change Charlie. He's someone whose faith in the righteous God increased. His wife sees it at home. His kids know it at home. There is hope for Charlie. Let's pray. Oh, God. I don't think that even I think a lot about your righteousness. So I want to thank you that you've given us this period of time to think about it. It's so important. You are just. Lord, I pray for those of your people who are here who are struggling with the injustices that are in the world, wondering why you permit them, why you don't stop them. There are murders, there are rapes, there are cruelties that occur here, and it is a mystery to us because we would stop them all. We would not delay justice. We would enact it immediately. But we rest ourselves in your wisdom and we believe that you are not only righteous, but your nature is the standard of what is right. Please help us not just to allow what we know about you, not just to put up with what we know about you in the scriptures, but to embrace it, to love it, to shape ourselves according to it. Even your judgment is good. Help us to exult in you as the righteous God and to invite others who are currently under your delayed wrath to move away from that into Christ and to have your righteousness as their own. It's in Christ's name we pray.